We see crosses everywhere, on buildings, upon necklaces, and even in tattoos. But in the first century, the cross was a symbol of power, violence, and death. Decent people never spoke of the cross. This most gruesome death instrument had one purpose, terrifying and torturing Rome's adversaries. For its victims, the cross meant a slow and agonizing death. No one ever came back from the cross. So, what in the world compels early Christians to embrace it as the most treasured symbol of love? The Bible itself clearly elevates the cross as its most central and core truth, the very power of God, and the only message Christians offer. But why? What is the point of the cross? Jesus is alive and good. Uh, let me ask you guys this question. Um, when was your most awkward moment? When was your most awkward moment? Now, I'm not going to make you get up and share that right now, because I'm going to do that for you. Um, I actually was maybe 13, 14, and I wasn't my full-orbed, like, extroverted self quite yet. I was getting there, but not quite. And I remember my older brother, Brandon, actually invited me to join him for this camp that I'd never been to, and he was a leader at. And so I'm there early with the leaders, and I'm like not really sure what to do with myself. And then the day came where all of the students, like, you know, dozens, hundreds of students were going to show up, actually came. And I remember standing there in the middle as like the first person, and then all of these like vans and cars and different things show up, people start unloading, and now there's like hundreds of people there, and they all like know each other and have some kind of background, and I'm going like, what do I do with myself in this moment? Like, do I introduce myself? What do I do? And so I did what any rational person would do, and I like opened a closet and went inside. <laughs> I like closed myself in, because I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't look right, I don't feel right, and I'm, I'm in this closet, and nobody knows where I am, and I'm sure my brother's like, where, where's my little brother? And then all of a sudden the door opens, and it's like the cleaning lady comes in, and she's like, what are you doing in here? And I'm like, what are you doing in here? And she's like, I'm the cleaning lady. And I'm like, I'm hiding here. <laughs> I am hiding here. When for you did you feel like hiding? When for you did at the soul level, level you said, and like, I shouldn't be here right now. I don't want these people to see me in this moment. Today we're going to talk about shame, whether it's the shame of awkwardly being like the one not cool person at a cool party, or the shame we experience at a very real and a very soul level. All of us have experienced it, haven't we? When did you feel you needed to keep it to yourself, that you didn't want them to know, that you needed to delete your history, where you had something to hide because you did not measure up. The feeling of shame can be comprised by all of these things, but it's also more. Because sometimes we feel shame not just because we've done something egregious or sinful. Sometimes even leaders talk about how they experience this feeling of being found out. Like, when am I going to be exposed as a fraud? You ever felt that? Or for other people, it's not because you did something egregious or sinful, but because you just lack confidence. That deep down, you're not comfortable in your own skin. My son, Ollie, at a really early age, would always get up super early and like dress himself. 
And we were like, we are super parents because he's like getting up and he's like putting on matching outfits. Like he's a savant and like we're going to have a prodigy and he's going to start Google or something. And so like we're stoked on this. But then there was that day that we found out why he was doing it because uh, Lindsay, my wife, had asked him like, would you put on a different outfit because we're going to do something special today? And he like melted down. And we were like, what is going on, buddy? And he looks at us, he's like, no, I need to wear the right thing. It's this feeling of like, I need to cover myself the right way. Or, or our son, Remy, uh, very early at like, you know, one, two years old, would always kind of curl into my side whenever we'd be out in public and people are around. And I remember him looking at me and saying, like why he was doing that is because he said, Daddy, I don't want people to see me. I don't want people to see me. The definition of shame, if we were to put a definition on this, is the feeling of being exposed with a stain on our souls. So where do we find the answer for our shame? Today, uh, as we continue in our series, What is the Point of the Cross? We're going to look at just that. See, we've said all throughout this series that the, that the cross doesn't just mean one simple thing. It is a simple idea, but it is also deeply complex. And we need to unpack all of its meaning to experience all of the riches of its healing. And so today we're going to unpack this idea called expiation. If you're taking notes, this may be a new word for you, but we're looking at the doctrine of expiation. And so to do that, we're going to look at all of Scripture. Typically, our standard fare here at Rise is that we open up one text of Scripture, one chunk of 10, maybe 20 verses, and we'll explore and expose that one passage. But to do this, we actually need to kind of survey and follow a thread throughout the mega theme of Scripture. So if you have a Bible, you're going to be flipping around a lot, uh, but I will have the verses on the screen. Uh, to do this, let's begin with prayer. Father God, I just pray in this moment um, that this would be a holy place this morning. Lord, that your presence would fill this place this morning. God, I know that there are people walking in here who uh, they feel that they have nothing to hide. And God, on one hand, I pray thank you for that. And, and we praise you that we can have this feeling of I have nothing to hide. But for some of us, that actually, God, is um, us not recognizing the truth that there is something to hide before a holy God. And so God, even as I ask that you would be gentle today, God, would you allow us to experience something of the pinch of that exposure, that we would come to grips with reality about where we are. And Lord, at the same time, there are others who are coming here who are weighed down by guilt and shame. And I pray for um, all of us who are the sheep of your pasture, that you would bring healing through this precious, precious doctrine of expiation. Lord, would you do the healing work that only you can do by your spirit? God, open our hearts and let us receive from your word in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. So let's start with this. As we're surveying scripture, what is the origin of shame? Where does this all come from? If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, you may say, man, it's just because I feel bad. But you're wondering, like, why do I feel bad? Like, why should I feel bad for the things that I've done? If we're all just apes sort of like evolved from primordial soup and our, our lives mean nothing, why do we feel this ache deep down in our souls? Well, it all starts in the garden. 
It all starts in the story of Scripture in the Garden of God. And what the Garden was, and even if you've been a Christian for a long time and you're not new to this narrative, uh, I may reveal something or expose something here that'll be really helpful for you and you may not have understood the nuance of. But the Garden was the paradise, Eden, where God installed the first humans, Adam and Eve. And this Garden, now, now track with me here, it was not just a paradisal garden, but it was also a temple. It was also a temple. And here's what I mean by that. Later on in the book of the Bible, we actually, or in, in other books of the Bible, what we actually find is that the temple is the sacred place where God's spirit dwells intimately and immediately. Like you could walk into a certain part of the temple, the deepest, most central part of that temple, the Holy of Holies, and experience God's white hot presence like smoke or, or cloud in a sauna. Like you're walking in and you experience it there. And that is exactly what Adam and Eve had in the garden. In fact, there is this priestly nature of Adam. A priest is someone who mediates, is standing between God and man. And Adam serves in that way in the garden, which is a type of temple at the beginning of the Bible, mediating the direct presence of God. And if you're like, where are you getting this like other religious nonsense? This isn't Bible right now. Like I actually want you to see this in the text of scripture. Genesis 2.15, now I'll point a few things out here. This is what it says. The Lord God made the man and put him in the midst of the garden of Eden. Now look, look at this. To work it and keep it. Now, we, we may not pick up on this in our English translation, but what it says here, work it and keep it, is actually the Hebrew words shamar and abad. Now the Hebrew words shamar and abad, essentially work it and keep it, can be translated in other ways. The work it can also be to minister, to minister, to minister in the presence of God. And to keep it means, and is translated in other places, to guard it or protect it. We pick up this language only, one other, or only a few other times in scripture in one other place, and that is the temple of God. In the book of Numbers 3, 7, perhaps the best verse on this, it says, they shall, speaking of the priests, keep what? Guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they, what's that word? Minister at the tabernacle. Now this, these two phrases, shamar and abad, are repeated over and over in regards to priests. And here is the big idea. Adam was there in the garden as a sanctuary where he got to walk in the cool of the day in the direct and immediate presence of God. Now stop right there. Like, can you imagine that experience? Can you imagine that there is no barrier between you and God? Like right now, as you're sitting in this room and there are people sitting in front of you, like you feel God's presence the way you feel the presence of the person beside you, where you can hear their breath, where you can, where you can experience their nearness. You had that with God. And then we see this. Adam was not the only person working and keeping the garden. There was another character there, and his name is Satan, and he appears as a serpent in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so what happens is the serpent comes in and he begins to try to, now notice this, drive a wedge between the barrierless relationship between God and man. 
through questioning God's word, through, through exposing them to lies. And then the result we find as we continue on in the story in verse 7 of chapter 3. Pick up the text. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, instead of approaching him, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, among the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. So now they're hiding. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now notice this phrase here in this text. You notice that they start hiding. And what do they do there at the beginning? It says that their eyes were open, and so they did something. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is not merely like, hey, we just, like, we have knowledge now, so we realize, like, we're not wearing clothes. So let's, like, hook it up with some clothes right now, right? Like, where's our clothes? You know, God forgot something. No, what they're experiencing is a soul-level nakedness, and so they sewed fig leaves together. This is very spiritual. And listen to me. Many of us, we're not going to go out when we feel shame and, like, find, like, maple leaves, you know, like, or because we're in Oregon, like, pine leaves, like, which really wouldn't work very well. Be, like, actually inappropriate, (laughs) I think. (laughs) But we sew fig leaves, don't we? We sell fig leaves. Um, after moving out to Milwaukee, I grew up in Gresham. Out, out in Milwaukee, I'd just gotten married to my wife, Lindsay, and we were considering, like, where do we want to like, do life? Where do we want to settle down? Where do we want to purchase property, all this stuff? And I remember, like, as we would talk about the idea of moving back to Gresham, where I had grown up, um, that was the one thing that we were never willing to do. <laughs> and the reason is because I had been a total idiot in Gresham. That my, whenever we would come out here, we would hang out with my friends, we would bump into people, and they'd be like, hey, are you Nolan? And I'm like, what's up? And they're like, like that Nolan? And I was like, what do you know? But the truth is, like, I experienced so much shame from what I had actually done and who I had actually been that for us, a fig leaf was actually being tied around our waist by saying, I'm not going to go back to Gresham. Maybe there's even some of you in here who have experienced the exact same thing. I know several people's stories is I didn't want to live in Gresham because I know that people know who I am. And most of us, we have some kind of fig leaf that we cover ourselves with. Mine was escapism. But what is your fig leaf? What is your fig leaf right now? Is it makeup? Literally wearing makeup for you is a fig leaf. Now, for other people, you may just be like, well, I just like aesthetics, and I care about, like, I don't want to look unkempt, and, like, I care about this kind of thing. And, and it's not always a bad thing, but for some of us, you know that you are doing it because it is your fig leaf. Is it clothing? You got to wear the right clothing because it is a way of concealing what you're hiding deep down. I bought some new vans this weekend. My wife was sick of my dirty vans. Is it a fig leaf for me? Maybe, all right? Maybe. But they also look dope. Titles, money, how much you have, friends, social media, likes, views, followers, your job, your degree, your degrees, your church involvement can even be a fig leaf. 
I'm not saying you should like drop out of like greeting team and just be like done with that because we need you. All right, like don't stop serving in kids. But the truth is for some of us, it's about the heart motivation. Are you serving because you love the God who has saved your soul and you want to serve people who are also saved and need to be saved? Or for you, is it saying like, well, well I serve at church. And so because of that, like I'm good. For some of you, it's tribal affiliation. You're like, I'm part of the right tribe theologically. And, and maybe others of you like don't even know what that is, theological tribes. And you're like, well, no, I associate with this tribe politically. And so because of that, I'm okay. I'm on the right side of history or, or whatever it is. It's using spiritual language for you, a fig leaf. You ever meet a person and you're like, how are you doing? Right? You're over cups of coffee and you're looking to like genuinely tend to their soul, to work and to keep to minister as a priest of God to, into their lives. And they're like, man, I'm blessed and highly favored. And you're like, wait, what? What does that mean? Like, yeah, hallelujah. Right? Like, like, what are you doing there? You're like, I I'm just like trying to find out how you're doing. You're like, the Shekinah glory of God. And like, I got all these blessings that keep coming down. And you're like, they're like hiding behind spiritual language, hiding behind spiritual language. Is it exercise? Right? You, you can't go out without that pump brother, because you need to, you need to hide. It's not just because you want to look good for the ladies or whatever, right? And that may or may not also be a good thing. It's another sermon. <laughs> but like you go out with a pump because you're actually hiding a little boy that got hurt deep down. Is it being tanned that your hair is on point? Activism and good deeds. Activism and good deeds. You're like, I'm not willing to deal with the personal situation deep down, so I am going to do these external good deeds, accomplishment, or maybe even knowledge. And here's the reality. You cannot heal an inward wound with external solutions. Instead of, like, walking and hiding, we need to come to the end of our concealing and begin to walk in Christ's healing through expiation expiation. And so here's what I want to kind of conclude with. We need to talk about the healing of shame. We've talked about shame and what it looks like. Now let's turn a corner here and let's actually look at what heals our shame in expiation. So if we said that the definition of shame is feeling we've been exposed with a stain on our souls, the definition of expiation is the covering and cleansing of stains upon our souls by Christ. This is actually what comes from the Hebrew word kafir, kafir. And the word kafir, it actually means to cover. And you're like, wait a second, those words sound alike, and it's for good reason. The word is often translated atonement. And we think of atonement, we're like being made right with God, but one of the dimensions of atonement is that our shame is actually covered. And there's two kinds of shame that kafir actually covers. You know this. There are two kinds of shame. The first one are sins that we have committed. The things that you and I have done that we should not have done. The things that you and I have not done that we know, man, I should have done that. Jesus wants to cover that shame. But the second kind of shame that we often forget that this idea kafir actually covers biblically is not just what we have done. And often that's the only way we apply the gospel. We're like, man, if you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we've all done that, so you need to have your shame covered. Listen, there are also sins that were committed against us and caused disgrace at a soul level. 
and for you. And we often talk here about, like, we don't want to embrace a victim mindset. And there is tons of truth to that. And that is in part because when people have experienced real victimization, it actually takes away from the real pain and the real hurt that has happened there. And I want you to know, because there's some of you who say like, yeah, like it's not these sins that I've committed. I know that I'm forgiven of that. It's the stain on my souls that that person gave me when they did this to me. I need you to know that the gospel is also good for you. The gospel also provides healing for you. Because in the gospel, because of the cross, and we'll see why here in a moment, you are no longer defined by what they did to you, but what Christ has done for you. That is the hope of Jesus. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read through what the doctrine of expiation teaches in all that Christ did in several verses. This is going to be very um, linear, very uh, maybe intellectually based. This is going to be a, a teaching for the mind, but here's what I believe, that shame can cause us to feel deeply emotional, and we start to operate from those emotions, and instead of operating out of deep emotional things rooted in lies, we need to operate from the truth. And so I'm going to read a lot, but what I want for many of you to do is if you have been like experiencing this shame, this might actually be a time where you can kind of posture your heart and receive what the gospel teaches based on the cross of Jesus for you. And some of you, you're saying, like, I, I could do that in the quiet of my heart right now by just kind of posturing myself inwardly. Others of you are like, no, nah, I've been through enough spiritual warfare that I don't care who knows, I'm going to open my hands like this and receive it. But wherever you're at, I just want to read these verses over you and allow the teaching of truth to set you free. So what does the doctrine of expiation teach? Number one, it teaches that Jesus blots out your shame. Isaiah 53, 25 says this, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Number two, it teaches that Jesus buries your shame. Micah 7, 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread out our iniquities underfoot. He will cast out our sins into the depths of the sea. Number three, Jesus banishes your shame. Psalm 103, 11 through 12 says this, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Number four, Jesus bleaches your shame. Isaiah 1 verse 18 says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they become like wool. Listen to me. In the Gospels, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he is constantly demonstrating the reality of expiation through his activity all over the place, even prior to the cross and leading up to it. He sees and heals an ostracized woman 
who had been suffering from an ostracizing discharge of blood for 10 years. And he sees her and he heals her. He welcomes outsiders and rejects like the woman at the well who was a Samaritan and should have nothing to do with the people of God. And Jesus goes after her. He welcomes outsiders, but he also restores traitors. People who had actually done messed up, jacked up things, who had betrayed the people of God. Jesus says, yeah, you did that, and I'm going towards you. I'm moving towards you. And he welcomes them back to be his disciple. He ultimately cleansed the temple of all of the sinful activity, driving out the very people who were serving to oppress God's sheep. He drives them out, and then finally, as our faithful high priest, he forgives sin of all sinful people, regardless of type, by dying in our place on our cross for our sins. Amen? Amen. This is what Jesus has accomplished in expiation. But I need to ask this question. Why did he have the right to do that? Because we said that God's presence is holy, and that is the purpose of a priest keeping that place. That is the purpose of saying we have to guard this from impurity. We have to guard this from our sin. God can't just arbitrarily, as we learned last week in justification with Jason, say like, ah, it's okay. There's no big deal. Nothing to be ashamed of here. Just keep on doing what you're doing instead. God actually had to do something. And that's where we see number five and finally here, that Jesus didn't just bury and burn and do all of us to our sin. He did that and was able to do that because Jesus bore our shame. Luke 23, 34 through 38 say this. Let's lean into the details of this passage. And Jesus said, Father, now this is him dying on the cross, suffering on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. They literally wrote this and placed it above Jesus on the cross, saying, this is the king of the Jews. And then finally, we hear a commentary on this passage in the book of Hebrews telling us what he was doing there on that cross. In verse 13, uh, 12 of chapter 13, it says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp to bear the reproach he endured. Here's what he's saying. Jesus experienced. He forgave our shame, and he removes, and he cleanses, and he covers our shame. Why? Because he actually bore our shame. He actually wore our shame. Notice the details. Jesus, first, we see that he died on the cross naked. You ever wonder about that detail there? What is he doing on the cross naked? It's not just random that he chose to allow himself to be stripped on that cross. It is, he is bearing the very same inward nakedness that Adam and Eve felt on the garden and that each one of us feel daily as we experience inward realities of shame. He took upon himself our exposure and our spiritual nakedness. Secondly, in this text, we see that he was scoffed at and stolen from. Why would Luke 
our, our, our gospel writer here intentionally include that detail? Isn't it sufficient to just say, like, Jesus died for me? Why does he describe in such horrific detail the kind of pain that Jesus is enduring, the kind of shame that he is exposed in? Well, it's because he received our rejection and ridicule and was treated as worthless. That Jesus, they were saying, you are a piece of garbage. And so we're going to divide up your garments because you are worthless. You ever feel worthless? You ever been insulted, ridiculed, made fun of? Listen, Jesus experienced all that for you on the cross. And then lastly, it says, we notice that he was labeled with an inscription. We pointed that out, right? Well, that is because he received our bad name and our bad reputation. And you ever, you ever had a bad reputation? You ever done something that you were ashamed of and now everybody knows about? You are in good company with Jesus because he experienced your bad reputation on your behalf and he there is our great high priest. Ultimately, no, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't end our defilement. Ultimately, the priests entering daily and yearly for significant rituals in the temple could not deal with it because ultimately, where Adam and all the other priests failed so that we were left feeling shameful and exposed, Jesus, our great high priest, prevailed so that we might be cleansed and covered. And so what are the implications of this? This is a heady doctrine, but it has power to set us free in multiple ways. And I want to walk through these. There are three of them. What are the implications of expiation? Here's number one. They are personal. There are personal implications for expiation, meaning this, that we can run to God freely because he already bore the weight of our shame. You ever notice that most times when we sin, many of us, we do this thing where we're like, man, I, I messed up big. And so here's what I'm going to do. I am going to go into the doghouse for a time spiritually. You ever do this? You, you, some of us don't even recognize that we're doing it, but we're doing it. We're like, man, since I did this, I, I need to just stay away from God for a while. Maybe I'll remove myself from the people of God. I'll remove myself from the gathering. I'll step down from serving or whatever. And we're like, I just need a break from church, a break from God. And you're almost like trying to pay it back to God as though like you walking away from God were either the point or effective to actually heal you. Man, us punishing ourselves does nothing. Instead, we can run to God in all of our shame, in the moment of our sin, saying, God, I've messed up and I need you now. That is the point of expiation, that you come to Jesus rather than run to Je from Jesus in your shame. I was sitting with a dude this week who, uh, he is a leader, an awesome guy, and I've been enjoying my relationship with him, and we're sitting across from this table, and I was like, how are things going? And he brought up a conversation he had this week, and he said, look, man, I, I had a hard conversation with another brother, and I was like, oh yeah, like what happened? And he told me, listen, um, he sat me down, and I didn't know what to expect, what to expect, and he said, listen, um, he gently and directly called out my sin. I had done some things against him, and he sat me down, and he's like, dude, I love you. Uh, I'm hurt by you. This happened, and I want to talk about it with you. And um, most of the time when you have that kind of moment, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, our instant reaction is to do what? We're like, oh, I didn't do that. Or if I did that, there was a really good reason. And um, this guy I'm sitting across, he goes, I looked at him, and I said, yeah, I did do that. Yeah, I did say all those things. 
and that was super messed up about uh, messed up of me, and I just apologize, <laughs> right there. I, I have no excuse. Like I did it, and I need your forgiveness. And the dude looked back across the table, and he's like, "Let's talk the gospel." And they sat there and they talked. And you know what I was most excited about? I was excited that that other brother sat him down. I was like, go him. What a savage, right? Like, that's intense. But on the other hand, I was almost even more proud of this other brother who said, like, yeah, I did it. Because we don't need leaders who sit here and try to pretend that everything is okay. Because honestly, when that's not true, you're not actually leading. Instead at Rise, my prayer is that we would be lead repenters. Man, don't you want to have some people in the church lead out, not just, hey, everything's good, bless and highly favor, man, I'm doing great, how you doing? And, and I'm not talking about inappropriately someone comes in like, hey, welcome to Rise, and you're like, man, I just like killed somebody yesterday. <laughs> it's like not really what I'm hoping for. <laughs> but um, my prayer is that we would be a people who the greatest leaders among us are lead repenters, husbands, to look across uh, to your wife and say, man, I haven't loved you well. And that was wrong of me. And I'm so sorry. And I, I want to walk with Jesus. And I want to make this right between you and me. And, and can you pray for me? Man, that's not, that's not weakness. That is strength in the gospel. That's not broken. That is leadership. And you're going to see her come alive in a way that you've never seen her come alive. Husbands, parents, looking at your children when you blew it. And looking them right in the eye and say, hey, honey, mommy kind of said some things that she shouldn't have said. And mommy needs Jesus, and I'm sorry, honey, and let's, let's talk to Jesus. Will you forgive me? It's lead repenting because we can run to God freely with all our shame, with all our baggage, amen? That's the truth. Secondly, it is communal. We can welcome others because we want them to experience the weight lifted. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but social media is this place that we talk about, man, it's a place of community when you're not in community. You can like, you know, post things and people know what's happening in your lives. And some of that can be true if used the right way. And I believe God could work a movement through social media as he has through printing press and all the other things. But there is a dark underbelly to social media where we use it as a platform to post all our highlights and cover our shame, and then on the flip side, post and say things on there in order to cause fear and shame in other people. It's this, we, we think of ourselves not as like some primitive fear and shame culture, but most of us are guilty of using social media for that very thing. And here's the beauty of the church. Here is the beauty of the gospel community. In a world of fear and shame, the church is a contrast community of healing and grace. And that is what we were meant to be, welcoming those who are broken and loving one another. And that leads us to lastly, number three, the final implication of expiation is missional. It's not just personal. It's not just communal, but lastly, it is missional, where we are sent on a mission to carry the message of the cross into the midst of a cancel culture. This is what we're doing. And we get this from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And as we conclude, I want you to just zoom into this verse and pause on it. Just let this wash over you and imagine what would happen in our city if we let this passage, this doctrine of expiation, transform and move us out into our world. This is what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ, what? Reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, we are reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made us, to uh, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, as we enter into a time of worship, and this whole doctrine makes me think of when I was a brand new Christian. I got saved at 16, and I was not the kid that grew up like, you know, with the flannel graph on like Sunday mornings and like learning all the stories of David and Goliath and all that stuff. Like I literally didn't know that stuff. I was not the kid who went to all the VBSs and like here I am and I like know the stories. I came in rough, all right? And I say rough because it's a cute way of saying super sinful. I came in with problems. I came in with baggage. And to be perfectly honest, one of the hardest hurdles of becoming a Christian for me was coming into a church where all of the kids in this youth group had grown up going to VBS. All of the kids in this youth group had grown up knowing all the stories and, and like having the right theology. And I was a mess, bro. And then as I stepped out and I got baptized and I began to serve and I began to lead, there were literally people whose names I remember right now who looked at me in that moment and were like, this guy is jacked up and just wait till the youth pastor finds out about him. You see, my problem wasn't that I had like all of this like darkness and all of this sordid stuff in my past. My problem was my filthy, rotten present. You ever... Like thought, man, I wish it was just my past that I was dealing with. But for me, it's actually my dirty, rotten present that I'm dealing with. Sometimes we like to tell our testimony, man, this is who I was and now this is who I am. But the truth is all of us are still carrying some stuff. And so here's what I want you to do. I want to experience tangibly together the doctrine of expiation as we sing. And the way we're going to do this is I'm going to ask right now that we respond and we're going to do so by everybody bowing their heads and closing their eyes right now. Father God, would you send your spirit and make this place your sanctuary right now? Now, there's nothing special about these walls, but it is sacred when you show up in them. Lord, we just open our hearts right now to receive the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're no more in this room by our asking than you were before, but our hearts are more open to you. And so, God, across this room, I pray that hearts would be opening one by one, that hearts all over this room, Christian and non-Christian, would be revealed and flowering and opening and blossoming for the presence of God to come in. And right now, under the sound of my voice, everyone in this room, I want you to do something weird with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed. I want you to clench your fists. Just clench them tight. Clench them real tight until there's white on those palms. Clench them up. You guys, do, you guys doing it? With every head bowed and every eyes closed, I want us together, when you're ready, when you're ready to receive this truth, that you can be rid of your disgrace by the cross of Jesus. All I want you to do is just open them up. 
just open your hands across this room. And by opening your hands, what you are saying is, I receive your freedom, Jesus. Not for my past only, but I receive it for my present, God. I receive the gospel again today. And if you are not a Christian, man, I want to encourage you, would you do this too? And by doing this, I am asking you to become a Christian. To come to the end of yourself and to step in to all the healing that Christ offers. To the release. To the freedom that you do not have to measure up because Christ has measured up for you. And he wore your shame on that cross so that no matter what you have done and no matter what you do, you experience total freedom in him and can keep coming back for more grace and more grace and more grace. Father God, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.